I'm Dr. Brian Williams. I serve as a social and bioethicist, and my my placement on the planet is serving as a, as president of McCall College. And so I'm welcoming you to my OSHER lectures that were held at, held at Boise, Boise State University over the month of April. And it was a wonderful experience of working with those who, uh, oh, I think I forgot a step. Let me see if I can catch up with this step. There we go. Hope that's better. And the uh, lecture series at Boise State was a wonderful experience for all. And I appreciate the opportunity of delivering it there. But I really appreciate the opportunity now of delivering to you the, uh, the same lecture series as I delivered there. My plan will be to do uh, either seven or eight uh, Thursday nights over the course of May and June. And that should allow me to, uh, to present the material. It is eight hours long, and so there's lots of material to, uh, to become familiar with. And we trust that uh, tonight will be uh, a good start to the development of that material. The problem I'm beginning to address is that of unhealthy individuals and also unhealthy institutions. I think we've all been more than aware of the polarization that is occurring in our society. And we can intuitively understand that excessive polarization is unhealthy. More individuals tend to be strident, and that makes them socially unhealthy. Institutions are fractured, and therefore they're equally socially unhealthy. I define them both as asymmetrical. Asymmetry is a lack of balance with competing individual and social forces. We'll be doing lots of definitions, and I'll try and always be clear with you when it comes to a definition. Uh, and, uh, and we prob probably will be fairly repetitious in trying to understand the definitions that are important to us. I think I'm going to change that picture over to the other side, maybe down there, uh, so that we can see the top corner of the slide. Thank you. Asymmetry, a lack of balance with competing individual and social forces. And I'm going to make a claim that I think will guide us through the entire lecture series. Healthy polarization is the basis of unity. Not uniformity, but unity. Let me say that again. Healthy polarization is the basis of unity. Not uniformity, but unity. I'll come back to that many times, and I trust that you'll begin to understand what I'm trying to say uh, with that particular claim. But we've all heard about the polarization. What if it is 
the basis of unity. The example we'll be using in our entire presentation is we'll be starting with health. Excuse me. We'll be starting with healthcare, uh, and and so we'll be looking at healthcare closely. Though a little later on, uh, we'll be also dealing with political institutions. But healthcare is our first example and our primary example that we'll be working on throughout our lecture our lecture uh, series. And so patients and healthcare institutions are the prime case that we'll be working on. The vaccine wars have exposed a decline in confidence of medical knowledge via physicians and a reduction in their social authority. Strident individuals, fractured healthcare. We must ask why. The pandemic showed people dying alone in ICUs with no control over care and no family allowed. In previous generations, we had a particular characteristic in medicine that we called medical paternalism. And that's when the physician, primarily, was clearly in charge, made sure usually he uh, was the one that defined the care, and made sure that the care uh, was followed by the patient. So there really wasn't a lot of interaction. What we typically call patient-centered care is a reaction to physician-centered care. And that we would also call paternalism. That fractured healthcare. Why was it happening? For too many, people cannot afford current health care and are seeking alternative medical information and treatments. For too many, people cannot afford to believe their doctors or the other ancillary physicians that initially aren't given as much education, our physician assistants and our nurse practitioners, though they certainly can go on and acquire all the knowledge necessary for them to be a superb, uh, serve in a superb role in healthcare. And so the patients then often rely on ava available social sources, such as the social media and Google. People wanted and believed in patient-centered health care. That was before the pandemic. The pandemic offered the opposite. How does belief harden into rejecting dominating truth? How does lack of belief disrupt our institutions? I'd like to take you on a path to what I'll define as complex truth. I'd like to make it a five-step journey towards complexity. I like to begin whenever I'm introducing students to new ideas, and I've spent lots of time introducing students to religions of the world, as well as the available issues uh, in bioethics. And in religions of the world, 
I always try and make sure they understand that they begin at awareness. And awareness, in, in my set, setting, has often been, are they aware of the religion that they're talking about? One of the most intriguing religions is Jainism. Many of you may not know that religion, but it is one of, considered one of the major religions of the world. It's an Indian religion. Most lack awareness of this religion. If I told you that Mahatma Gandhi was raised in a Jain village, would that pique your curiosity? Gandhi's actions, like a Jain, changed the world. If you remember the fasting that he used, long, intense fasting, as a strategy to get the attention of the British to try and seek independence for India, you realize if he was from a Jain village, that he would have been watching Jains practice their religion, which includes fasting. Gandhi's actions, like a Jain, changed the world. Gandhi influenced Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King changed the world. He began by changing America, but he really also changed the, wor ch changed the world. Your life is different because of the Jains. Now, are you interested? You're now aware. If you are aware of the Jains, you might want to study with me or those communities that might be around you who have some knowledge of the Jains so that you can seek to understand them. If you understand them, you might incorporate some of their ideas into your belief system. The more you act on your beliefs, the more confident you are that they are true for you. So let's review it up to there. First, you need to become aware of a new concept. Let's jump into the world of healthcare. mRNA vaccines were a new item in the armamentarium of a physician. And so our communities were able to incorporate mRNA vaccines. But first we had to be aware of what they were. And so that awareness caused many to dive into the idea of mRNA vaccines so that they understood them. So you need to explore this new awareness to create understanding. And for many of us, we spent considerable amount of time Googling and talking and working with the concept of mRNA vaccines. And that concept bore fruit where those that were interested in receiving an mRNA vaccine received it into their bodies and incorporated it into who they were as a person. Now, for those that did that, they believed in the mRNA vaccine that it would protect them. 
But those that didn't take the vaccine, there was no belief. They, may, they, they were certainly aware of the vaccine. They may have understood the, back, the, the vaccine and all that it could do, but they didn't take it. And so this is the step of belief or no belief. And so that opportunity to make that decision is important to our understanding of truth. And so after you're aware of something, then it becomes your decision whether you want to understand it. And once you understand it, you can believe and do it, or you can not believe and reject it. And so that's the third step of awareness, understanding, and belief. If we allow our beliefs to harden, they become simple truths that often are affirmed with just time. You've had the belief for long enough that it's a truth for you. You believe it, it's a truth. And one way that you might sense that it's a truth for you is if you share it with others. And that sharing becomes your way of transmitting your beliefs that now have become truths. And that also begins to influence your social community. And so that social community will also have people that believed enough to do something, and when they did it, they shared it with you. And that becomes a community of belief and a community of truth. And by sheer elapsing of time or sharing with one's social community, there's a validation that happens and the community affirms it as truth. For those that don't believe in the vaccine, that equally hardens with time. As you become exposed to others in your community that also believe or don't believe in the vaccine, then that becomes a truth for you, that it's not what you want. And you often will share that. And you may have heard about others in your community that also didn't believe in the vaccine. And many of the, of the institutions in our community also shared that, and we often saw that within many of the churches, that many of the individuals in the church didn't believe in the vaccine, shared that with one another, and became a community of non-belief. And so, simple truths are when ideas enter into a person's belief structure and is shared with others. And it becomes a cycle of sharing and a cycle of understanding each other's uh, belief system. And it becomes truth for all. But there's one more step I'd like to introduce you to. When we recognize that another truth is opposite to yours, but it still may be true, we're going to call that a deep truth. This is the basis of complex truth.
Deep Truth was defined by Niels Bohr, a physicist, and he was sp spent much of his time in correspondence to Albert Einstein. They were grappling with the properties of light because they realized that, uh, that, that over the generations, the conversation had been a, a, a polar conversation on what was light. And the conversation about the properties of light often be, begins uh, with Isaac Newton. And Newton, uh, in, in, his, in his experimentation, in his understanding, um, uh, defined light as a particle with mass. And the best way to understand that is to, is to, rem is to remember that that device with the five balls that are dangling from string and you lift up one of the balls and it drops across, hits the back of the balls and the front ball goes popping up and comes back and hits what is now the back of the line and the other side goes popping up and, and you create this this symmetrical activity of the ball popping out on each side. And Isaac Newton speculated that that was what light was, that it was a particle that goes popping through from a source such as the sun, and that particle goes popping along and eventually enters in as a particle into your eye, and you register it as light. The next generation uh, of scholars did a little more experimentation on light and came to the conclusion that light was a wave with no mass. And they were able to show in their experimentation how light was a wave, like a sound wave, but this, in this case it would be a light wave. And it had no mass to it. There was nothing moving like that. And so that became the idea that was then propagated as truth. A little later on, someone else came along and said, no, 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 light is a particle with mass. Newton was right. A little while later, someone came along and said, no, I've done the experiments. Light is a wave. It doesn't have any mass. And so, these ideas went from generation to generation as, as each could seemingly show what was truth. And so the conversation was that light is a particle with mass or light is a wave without mass. Well, in the conversation between Niels Bohr and Isaac and, and Albert Einstein, they changed one word, or, to and. Light is a particle with mass, and that can show to be true, and light is a wave with no mass, and that can show, and that can be shown in experimentation to be true. And so the definition that Niels Bohr gave to that was a deep truth. When two statements are opposite, and yet they are both true, 
That is a deep truth. And so our, our, our young physics students often have to grapple with that reality very early in their physics career. That they are going to be encountering truths that are opposite, but both true. And so what we're going to be doing here is using that as an illustration that there might be other deep truths out there. And we're going to more broadly define them as complex truths. When someone makes a statement that is true, and someone else makes a statement that is opposite to it, what if it's and they are both true? That's the door we want to open today. That's the idea and the thinking that we want to open. And so we hope that we'll have an opportunity to discover more deep truths. And, and generally we'll be talking about them as complex truths. When we have a truth that has been affirmed over time and by our social community, it's defensible. That's the point of having a truth, is to believe that it's true, and if someone disagrees with you, you can defend it. People are very defensive of their truths. That's who they are. That's their belief structure. And they easily reject contrary beliefs if, if it's advice that they don't believe. And so during the vaccine, uh, the, the, the time of inter introduction and management of the vaccines, it became obvious that there was a number of folks that were rejecting the idea of vaccines that their physicians had offered to them. And so this became medical asymmetry. And that became the collision between patients and doctors when truth statements are conflicting. When a social institution such as a hospital is asymmetrical, it cannot succeed easily in its mission, maintaining individual and public health. And we clearly saw in our hospitals where the wishes and the desires of the patients and the families were not being, not being uh, allowed to come into being. The, the reality of a public health crisis meant that you can't, you can't expose patients to disease. And in the midst of the pandemic, that exposure would have passed on the disease to others. And so they were restricted from the hospital. And that created an asymmetry. How, as, as we think about these, in, these, these situations that we have found ourselves recently, we need to ask the question, how is our education hurt us? on this pathway that we found ourselves on of asymmetry. Let's look at the speed bumps on the pathway to asymmetry. I would argue there's been a failure in complex thought. Educationally, you usually begin with simple terms, simple concepts, and then you move to complexity. The question becomes, when? Our K-12 educational processes 
tend to simplicity. Our higher education has the task of complexity. As an instructor of rhetoric at the University of Southern California, my task was to develop complexity from a generalized simplicity. I have a funny way of defining a university education, a bit re re uh, reductive, uh, so it's not completely accurate, but I sort of like it. A university education is the ability to hold two competing thoughts in your head at the same time without your brain exploding. Maybe not helpful, maybe it is. There's more speed bumps that we need to understand. Most high school graduates in Idaho now are not getting a university ed education with its emphasis on complex thought. But after modest complexity in high school, they are getting traditionally one-sided information from their community and social media. In Idaho, this is really serious. 57% of our high school graduates are not going on to college. And so if complexity is emphasized in a university education, they're not given the privilege of working on that complexity. And so simple thoughts, simple ideas, and simple truths are what is predominant in their world and become the, the, the reality of their world. Our path to asymmetry with simplicity instead of complexity is the result. What are some other signs along this path? We've already discovered that our beliefs become truth, but we also need to make sure that we understand that truths inform our beliefs. Our beliefs may have their origin externally or internally. They may come from other people or other divine sources or other books, or they may come from within, an intuition that wells up inside of the person, and it becomes a belief. However, when we believe it, as we've discovered, and it sticks with us, and we collect others around us, it becomes true, and we collect others who agree with us, and we will defend our truth, and we act because of the truth that we have. Truth is what we confidently know and act upon. We all have some truth that we anchor around. We are all usually content with our slice of the truth. People know intuitively they don't know everything, but they're confident that they believe what they believe, and it's true. Now, some thoughtful people might have actually thought about what part of what they believe might not be true. But I think for most people, 
that just carries the conversation too far. They believe the beliefs that they have encountered and incorporated, and it's true for them. But I think they all understand they don't know everything. They only have a slice of the truth, but they're okay with that. They're content with their slice of the truth. Truth is strengthened by what, by what we, we and most of those around us often believe. Our community and social media support and weaken our confidence in the truth. Our truth is our identity, individually, individually and collectively. And so it might be just so, so simple as, as I'm a Bronco uh, of Boise State, and the Broncos are a great team, and I support the Broncos, and I believe in them, and uh, they're going to do great in the fall football season. That's a belief. It becomes true for us. We know there's people that disagree with us, but it's true for us. And we act on that. We watch the games, we attend the games, we buy the goods. It becomes our identity that we have and share with others. Once we know we have some truth, we have choices. Three paths seem clearest. If life is okay, we can be satisfied and embrace the truth that we have. However, if life is going badly, we will reassess our truths. We might begin rejecting our existing truths. We might even go so far as to search for other truths. But I think there's also a third choice. If life needs a jolt, we can be insatiable for more truth and begin a pilgrimage for more of the elixir of truth. In my experience, the first choice seems normal. Most seem satisfied with the truth they've acquired and remain in what they hope is stasis with their truth possessions. This satisfaction is typical, in my judgment, of most high school graduates and those that have received technically trained individuals. They're just satisfied with what they have. Life is full, life is busy. Their truth, they try and pass on to the next generation, and they're okay with that. Our second choice, rejecting the truth that we have, been given or acquired on our journey, often has challenging, if not tragic, consequences. This often occurs in undergraduate education as a student is moving through their collegiate experience. Often happens as freshmen. Certainly happens in many cases as sophomores. I remember I came home as a, as a sophomore from my undergraduate experience here in Idaho. And I had had a great education in psychology. I took a minor in psych in addition to my, my major in biology, and I also took another minor in chemistry. And I thoroughly enjoyed all the knowledge I was achieving in my undergraduate education. But my, my course in child psych was particularly interesting because I had a little sister who was 13 years old at home. 
And on my first, uh, my first visit home as, uh, as a sophomore, I remember confronting my mother about some of the things that she was doing with my little sister. It didn't seem right to me. And I had new knowledge. Uh, and I wanted to pass on my knowledge. Uh, and, and, and so I proceeded to tell my mother about all the mistakes she was making with my 13-year-old sister. Well, you can imagine how well that went over. It didn't. And so she proceeded to tell me in no uncertain terms that uh, the way she raised the, uh, uh, my little sister was just fine and she'd turn out to be just okay. She was right. She turned out wonderfully. But when we come to the opportunity of comparing our truth to the truth that we may have known, it becomes difficult. <laughs> Excuse me. As we try and test our new truths that we've learned in a new setting from an external source and try and make sure that it seems to be right for us, therefore we want to share it with others, but it can often collide with another's opposing truth, and that can be difficult. No matter how we try to shed the truth we have been, been given, the shedding is often destructive. If we do find new beliefs that may lead to a truth, we often struggle to integrate them into our lives as our worldview usually demands shedding an old belief for a new one. Again, we see this often in religion. And the, the history of America is littered with stories of people that have been raised in one religious tradition. That tradition not serving them as well as they wanted, and them switching into a new tradition. And often we have heard the stories of those who have gone back to their original, original tradition and tried to explain what they now believe and not been well received and not, and, and not been accepted with the new beliefs that they have. And it might be as, as dramatic as, as one of the major world religions where they go from Christianity to Judaism to Buddhism to Jainism. And when those happen, you're disrupting often your community with its set beliefs and its truths. And you're, you're confronting them in a way that can often be very, very difficult for both the community and the individuals. We struggle when we are wanting to incorporate new ideas into our life. And often we've been told that you have to accept your old ways or reject your old ways and your old communities if you want to go forward in your new ways and your new community. Those are very difficult for individuals. And it is a story we have seen often. That tends to be an illustration of our second choice. Our third choice, insatiability in the search for new truths, is often experienced in graduate or advanced education. But I'll warn you, this may be the most destructive. The new truths that one finds are often conflicting, paradoxical, and world-shattering. Visiting the truth discovered in another land, society, 
or person or book exposes the truth minimalist, that person that inhabits that first choice, with firm beliefs to others leading to their truths and often resulting in jarring conflicts. This conflict may lead to rejection, to violence, to war, and to annihilation. And these are these incredible cultural conflicts that come up around the world. And we're seeing it played out now in the Russian and the Ukrainian war as two belief systems have gone head to head and the result is rejection of each other, violence, war, and the attempt to annihilate one or the other. We need a worldview that allows for integration of these conflicts. So we might now ask, what's our safest choice? If the third one is, has the highest likelihood of unsafety, maybe we should stay with the first one. Be satisfied with the truth you know, resting on the beliefs you believe. Be confident in your technical education and collect others around you who share similar beliefs. This seems the safest way to construct a community, society, and state. But let me warn you, staying content with these and those truths that you enjoy is the path to asymmetry. Our simple truth leading to action will tend to lead to violence. My truth is different from your truth, and I will defend my truth. This friction may lead to violence and war. So now we're in a conundrum. Our third choice clearly led us to war. Now we're realizing that our first choice might lead us to war. Where do we go? My thesis is that moral symmetry will give you a worldview to search for peace instead. This is the first presentation of this material worldwide. It was presented to the Osher, and I'm now presenting it to you as an extension of the Osher Lectures. It is new, and therefore, it will be challenging for all of us. We'll be searching for symmetry in chaos. Let's try and understand symmetry. You are physically symmetrical. Look at your right hand. Now, look at your left. They are mirror opposites. Look at the lines on your right hand and then your left. Think about your feet. Walking. Left, right, left, right, left, right. That's a symmetrical activity. You are designed to be symmetrical. Your DNA screams symmetry. A, T, C, G. You can go look those up. Dividing and propagating. 
symmetrical at each reproductive step. Every part of your body demands symmetry. Left hand with right hand, left foot with right foot, left brain with right brain. You function best with symmetry. But what about morality? Let's begin with moral asymmetry. Morally, asymmetry is abundant. Many of us have chosen significant others who are quite different. Yet, if they complement us, it turns to symmetry. Our religious structures have tended to create us versus them worldviews. And so the war that comes from the conflict of our major religions often has been created internally. You have to believe what I, I believe, and if you believe differently, you're out of here. Moral asymmetry. Yet Christianity, as one of the major religions of the world, uses a symmetrical doctrine of Trinity to uni unify its flock. If you go back through the history of Christianity, you'll see that the development of the idea of Trinity was because one group believed that there was one God, and we see that often within our Jewish congregations. And the early Christianity had many Jews that were part of early Christianity. Jesus was a Jew. And yet, much of their congregations were also Greek in their orientation and believed in multiple gods, many gods. And so the early councils were struggling with saying, how, how do we come together? Many of us believe in one God. Many of us believe in multiple gods. And the solution was symmetrical. We will believe in one God and three persons. We see that in many other religions. And we'll expose you to that as we go along. And so our religious community has used symmetry in their ability to create unity in their communities. Our moral dualism that erupts often out of our religious communities, good versus bad, begs us to do the good and reject the bad. That's moral asymmetry. However, Dualism has been rejected by many due to its impulse to violence towards others. Its opposite, monism or oneness, has been a recent re recommendation by many ethicists and theologians. Moral asymmetry is good versus bad. Pick one. Moral symmetry is good versus good. Both are valuable. However, our intellectual worldview and logical analytic philosophy resist symmetry. Our first choice, stasis, typically demands one or the other. Our first choice is asking us to make do with one hand, one foot, one side of our brain. Doable but difficult. Maybe you have a little complexity in your, about your truth claims. Now you are limping since you are not balanced in your stride. Asymmetrical walking is hopping or limping. If our institutions are asymmetrical, they are hopping along. Healthcare is limping. 
I think we can all see that. Unnecessary struggles loom. Why? Why are we limping? Our communities drift in and out of chaos. A key part of our community, healthcare institutions, do not seem healthy and often do not care. Although many of us appreciate quality care at the physical level, at the financial level, there is little to no care at all. Insurance companies, accountants, lawyers dominate the physician. The institution is asymmetrical. Could social asymmetry be because we have chosen to be asymmetrical? Do you not now sense the choice of stasis in our truth claims may be the most destructive at all? Especially in healthcare. We have let the accountants and the lawyers reign. How can we find symmetry? How can we be whole? I'd like to let you in on my vow. I am on a pilgrimage, and I invite you to join me on that pilgrimage. And I'm going to give it the name Holistic Symmetry. Here's my vow. I will search for truth insatiably. I will create a worldview that permits conflicting truths to exist peacefully. I will seek others who are different than I to cultivate a setting of coexistence. I and all will become whole in that setting. Our setting of healthy contradictions in dynamic tension will become whole with us. I am one and many and journeying to wholeness. May my complex truths leading to action carry us to harmony, unity, and peace. Welcome to our pilgrimage. I'm Dr. Brian Williams, your guide on this for journey. I'll give you a little more of my personal background next time, but right now, I'm just going to give you our goals and our tactics. Our social goal is to make healthcare healthy and caring. We've introduced you to the idea that somehow the accountants and the lawyers have altered healthcare so that it's not healthy and it's not caring. I'm going to introduce you to a, to a, a modified quote from Confucius. A good deed that's too expensive is not a good deed. Let me say that again. A good deed that's too expensive is not a good deed. Our health care offered to us as a good deed is too expensive. And it's not a good deed. Our social goal is to make healthcare healthy and caring. Our tactics to accomplish this goal is to explore the profession and activation of bioethics in Idaho 
in the Pacific Northwest. And then to offer a new, yet old, moral method to journey to peace. That's our introduction tonight to our series. And our series entitled Constructing a Pacific North Northwest Bioethic. And so we'll have to understand each of those words. What's a bioethic? Why the Northwest? Why Pacific? We'll have to understand that. We'll have to try and understand how we can be an active agent in making healthcare healthy and caring. And I'll trust you stay with me as I introduce some concepts that will be new, will be challenging, will be difficult for all of us to un understand, let alone become truth, let alone become deep truth or complex truth. It will be a journey of many new ideas. But I trust those new ideas give us all a framework that we can help to be agents in making healthcare healthy and caring. Thanks for joining me tonight.